All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Galatians chapter 3. And it is just really a blessing to return to this part of the Scriptures tonight. Uh, we're, we're looking at Paul's arguments about the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I think one of the things that we'll need to see in the message tonight, I, and I just I think we all need to be reminded of this, everything that we talk about here has Jesus Christ as its focus. He is the centrality of all of this. And, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, how Paul brings that out. But we're looking here, we're concerned ourselves with the 31 previous messages. Almost all of them have had something to do with this doctrine of justification by faith. And so we're really getting a look at this doctrine from just about every angle conceivable. And we've still got quite a bit more to go. And from chapter 3, verse number 6, down to chapter 4, verse number 7, Paul appeals to the scriptures as the very best proof that he has to explain and to prove his doctrine. You know, it's really amazing that there are so many people that claim to know about Jesus. Uh, Everybody's an expert on WWJD, what would Jesus do? And yet there are so many people that are ignorant of the Bible and really have no idea of all the implications that we have because of Bible doctrines. Well, Paul wasn't content to rest um, his arguments and his own opinions, just what he thought Jesus was like or thought that Jesus would do. He had no higher source of authority than the word of God itself. And so he went to the word, the words that God spoke, the things that were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. He went to the infallible scriptures as the resource for all of the matters of faith and practice of his Christian teachings. And so whenever Paul was attacked by those that perverted the gospel of Christ, he didn't depend upon his intellect and he didn't depend upon his own powers of persuasion and not his logic Although he did use all of those and he had all of those, he always depended upon the infallible word of God. Now, all of us sitting here tonight, we agree with that, don't we? I mean, I think that we would all agree that we need to know the word of God. The best place that we can go is to the word of God. And that's our final authority. And we don't have any problems with that. And that sounds easy to us that we can just pick up the Bible and begin to read it and everything is really simple. We just appeal to Scripture for all of our all of our teachings. Well, there is a problem with that, though, because that's what most churches do. That's what false churches do. They also appeal to the Bible for their doctrines. And if it was really easy to tell the difference between a false doctrine and a true one, then we really wouldn't have much trouble at all dealing with people. But we sit down with a passage of scripture like the one that we're studying right now, and we find out things aren't so easy after all. There are things here that are very difficult to understand. They're hard to figure out. And so you just can't pick up the Bible in any old place and say, well, that makes sense. That's a perfect argument. No, it takes a lot more than that because we find out that the Bible is is so interwoven that the things that we read in one scripture have a background and a foundation in other places and you have to know about all those things too. So that just puts you on a track where you're, you are just exploring all of the Bible to get all of your doctrine, to really learn the truth. And that's what we have to do as we look at this. These are things that are hard to understand. For instance, we have an example in this passage that we're studying tonight where just one word 
impacts the meaning of the statement that Paul makes. And whether that word is singular or plural is key and critical to understanding the argument that Paul is making. So you can't miss the details in these things. And this is why we encourage people, come on Wednesday nights, get with us and and get a deep look at the Word of God, look closely at it so we can dig out the details that will help us in our understanding of what God is telling us. Now, we'll go to our reading then in Galatians chapter 3. And I want to start again with the 15th verse. And we, we can't forget that everything that we read here is tied together with all this stuff that's gone on before. But unfortunately, we don't have the time to explore everything that's gone on before. And so to get all of that, you have to listen to the other messages. We're in a continuing series, so we do have to move on. Uh, But if you're missing something, you need to go back and check the previous material. So we look at Galatians chapter 3, verse number 15, where Paul says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now let let me just mention, when he said, I speak after the manner of men, What Paul is saying there, remember we talked about last week. He's saying, I want to give you an example. I want to give you an example out of common, ordinary, everyday experience. So he says, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore, then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now, the subject, once again, as usual for us, is justification by faith alone. And the importance of this particular text is is the damage that's done to the Christian faith faith by the misunderstanding of the relationship between grace and law. Now, if there's one thing that we cannot fault the Judaizers for, it would be this. And that is the very great respect, the strong respect they had for the law of God. Now, they didn't understand it very well, but they had reverence for God's law, and they knew that God had every right, the perfect right, he had the authority to rule his people by a divine law. Now, as Paul begins to defend the doctrine of justification without the deeds of the law, The objection that is raised immediately by his arguments by these Judaizers would be this. Is Paul against the law? Does he want to completely disregard the law? This is what they thought. Is he trying to throw off the law, just toss it all out the window? And the answer to those questions is here in these verses. Paul is not anti-law. He's anti-wrong use of the law. 
And so in this place, he begins to explain the correlation between grace and law, putting both of those into the right perspective. And he begins this biblical argument with two of the revered patriarchs of the Old Testament, and that's Abraham and Moses. Now let's back up just a little bit in the beginning of the message and just see what we started with last week. Number one was the link between Abraham and Moses. Now we just read that Abraham is mentioned in this text, but we didn't see Moses here. But we really don't have to have Moses' name because we do understand that Abraham is representative of faith and Moses is the representative of the law. And these are two men that lived hundreds of years apart, and yet there was an historical link between them in the eternal plan of God. Abraham was that one who was selected by God, that singular person that God chose out from all the people of the world, and told him that he would be the father of many nations. And he told him that he was going to give him a land, a promise of a land. He would inherit this land, and his chosen people would inhabit that land. But it's important for us to understand that the promise that was made to Abraham was more than a temporal promise. And it was more than just that a certain people, one people, would live on a plot of ground in one particular area of the world. Because this promise that God made to Abraham is one in which he said all the nations of the world would be blessed. Everybody that is a believer in Christ is going to be blessed in Abraham. And so if all the nations are going to be blessed, then it should be apparent to us that not all of the nations are able to live in this one little spot of ground called Israel. And so it's not all confined to this one little piece of ground in the Middle East. Now, the Jews aren't the only descendants of Abraham. There's a vast number of people descended from him, people from all kindreds and nations and all languages. There are people that are related to Abraham as the father of faith. That's the thing that sets him apart. Abraham was a child of God by faith, and everyone else who is a child of God by faith is a child of Abraham. They're related to him, and so they share in the promise that was given to Abraham. So all of these people cannot physically live in Israel. Now, if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11 a minute here, there's a very important passage that helps us to understand how that Abraham was actually looking for bigger things than just this land there in the Middle East called Israel. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 8, you'll see here that Abraham understood something much, much greater than just temporal blessings of God. There was more than that in the promise. Beginning in verse number 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, he went, or, or obeyed, and went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of that same promise, heirs with him of that same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. And so Abraham's ultimate hope was about heaven. And all of the descendants of Abraham, by faith, all descendants by faith, will be gathered together into this heavenly land where there is ample room to hold every person that God should call to faith through the gospel of Christ. Now, the link between Abraham and Moses is that Moses 
lived hundreds of years after Abraham, but it was Moses who came along at the right time when Israel was in bondage, and he was the one that led them right up to the brink of the promised land and was ready to take them in. Now, the nation of Israel was gathered together first under Moses. Now, in Egypt, uh, Israel lived in Egypt, but they weren't yet the nation of Israel. Why were they were there? Well, they were people from the same bloodlines. They were all from the descendants of Jacob. But under Moses is when Israel became a nation of laws, and that's when they were given structure and organization. That's when they had their government. And before that, they were dependent upon the world's government. But when this part of the promise was fulfilled and they were ready to enter into the land, when they were ready to get this land that God gave them, that's when they became the real nation of Israel. And that's the historical link that we have between Abraham and Moses. But there's also a theological link. And we talked about that last week. I covered that, but it's really... Uh, I want to spend a little time on that again because this is really vital information. And the theological link is the link between grace and law. Abraham represents grace. Moses represents the law. Abraham is representative of an unconditional promise that was given by God, while Moses represents a conditional promise, conditional demands of man's duty to God because of the laws that God gave. Later on, we'll see how that the argument develops further that the law was given to point out that man cannot fulfill the conditions of life that God has given. And so if we didn't have this unconditional promise that was given to Abraham to fall back on or actually to be the main thing that we have, then all of us would be lost forever. We can't live in the law of Moses. We, we can't live by that. It, it's, it's, it's a law of death to us because the law cannot offer us mercy. The law can't offer us any forgiveness. The law always demands justice. And so for every blessing that the law promises us for obedience, there's also a corresponding uh, curse for disobeying, a corresponding penalty for disobeying the law. Well, secondly, we started into the next part of Paul's argument, and this is that the law does not annul the promise. And in verse number 15, Paul began what we call an a fortiori argument. And as I said last week, don't let that throw you. That doesn't mean you've left out a Bible doctrine somewhere. A fortiori, a fortiori rather, simply means, it's a Latin term, that means an argument from stronger reason. Now, th- this is what Paul does. He, he makes an argument here from the validity of man-made contracts, these contracts that are made constantly in the ordinary course of life. And it's always expected that when two parties make a contract, that the conditions of that contract will be met, and nobody has the right to change the conditions of the contract unless those two parties should get together and uh, between them decide to change what that contract says. So we, we keep good contracts. I mean, we, we obey contracts that we make in order to keep good order in our society. We buy and we sell land according to contracts. When you take and put your money into the bank, you do that by a contract. Uh, nations make contracts with each other when they sign treaties. When a will is made, a last will and testament is a contract and the terms of that contract are binding and there is no one who has the right to change anybody's directions that have been given in a will. 
And so without that force of binding contracts, there really is no reasonable way that we can even live together. So Paul's argument here is that, is that if man makes binding contracts that cannot change, then how much more does God? And he confirms his contract with an oath, and he's not going to break that. He's not going to change what he said when he gave a promise. When he gave the promise to Abraham, it wasn't based on Abraham's performance. It wasn't on what Abraham would do, but what God would do. And that's the basis for the contract being kept. So God is not going to override the promise by putting the conditions of the law upon it. Now, this... This really has profound effects on the doctrine of salvation. Is salvation conditional or unconditional? Is salvation by God's work or is it by man's work? And further than that, is our salvation binding? Will God switch the tables on us? Can he change something after the fact? And all of those are very important considerations because if we cannot trust the unchangeable, immutable promises of God... If we can't trust him on the promises that he made, we have no basis to trust God in salvation. God may change it on us. And so we can't have a God who would change the the promises that he's made. Well, we want to go a little bit further tonight and look at a couple of more of Paul's arguments. So the next one that we want to look at is what I've called the singularity argument. And and to me, this is really one of the most fascinating arguments that Paul makes because it comes in a verse that is just really packed with theological meaning. And these next verses that we're going to look at, really, uh, they are just a nightmare for anybody who tries to exegete Scripture. Uh, Someone has said or others have said that the number of interpretations of some of these verses that just goes absolutely through the roof. I mean, uh, uh, verse number 20, it said, has over 400 different interpretations. Now, if we look at verse number 16, we want to see how the correct biblical interpretation hinges on the use of a plural or a singular noun. Now, sometimes the Bible, Bible's arguments can hinge on the tense of a verb. Sometimes that here in this 16th uh, 16th verse, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now let me point out to you that if we did not have the completed New Testament, all we had to look at was the Old Testament, you would never understand the statement that Paul makes here. Paul takes us back to the Garden of Eden where God made a statement to Satan and he promised that there would a redeemer, a redeemer would come for the human race. And we find out in that statement that everything that God does in the world is not for our sake, but it's for one person and one person only. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you wonder why we say things like, like, Salvation is not primarily for us, but salvation is primarily for God. Well, you can start looking for the answers to why we say that right here. The reasoning is right in these scriptures. Now, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we're about to learn here that the heir of every promise that God ever made, without exception, the heir of every promise that God ever made is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Christ is the center of every promise that's been made. It doesn't matter what happens at any time. 
You can't change God's promises because, in effect, to change the promises of God is to mean that God has doubled back, you might say, on his own son. Now, between the time of Abraham and Christ coming into the world, it's a period of about 2,000 years, and in between those two times, the law was given. And Paul's argument is that the law cannot change the promise that was made to Abraham because a change in that promise would affect the promise that's been made to Jesus Christ. Now, the Judaizers could make this argument that the law supersedes the covenant of Abraham because they would also have to say that the law supersedes the rights of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you don't understand all of that right now, but I I hope to make this a little bit clearer to you as we go along. And you have to stay focused here. You're going to miss what, what he's trying to say here. So we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. And we see here the place where Paul substantiates this argument. And I, and I really think that's a, that it's amazing. When you think about the Bible, this is simply amazing to me that you only go three chapters into the Bible and you find a statement here that is paramount to understanding a major part of what God has done in the creation of the entire world. It's a scripture that we refer to often because it is so foundational to support many, many other doctrines. In Genesis 3.15, it says, God said to Satan, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Who is the seed in that verse? Well, there are arguments that are made that the seed includes all of the people of God. And so thus you have an argument for separation between those that have been elected by God to salvation and those that aren't. And in Genesis 3, you see a very clear demarcation of God's intent to work with one group of people and not with the other. And those, that group of people is already viewed in, in Christ from the very beginning. Now, Calvin took the view that you cannot take the collective noun seed and confine it to one single seed. And yet he conceded that when Paul used the term in Galatians chapter 3 that the one seed that was singular referring to Jesus Christ so that any any victory that's won by the people of God over Satan actually is a victory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Satan may bruise the heel of the seed collectively if uh, Calvin's interpretation was right. He could bruise the heel of the seed collectively and eventually uh, he would, uh, eventually that seed would come back and, and crush the head of the serpent. Yet the victory that was won ultimately is the victory of Christ himself. So how does Genesis 3.15 relate to Galatians 3.16? Well, the argument is that when God made the promise to Abraham, he did not say seeds, which means many seeds so the promise is not made with a great number of people are in view not the many people who would be beneficiaries of that seed but rather the promise is made to Jesus Christ alone to him alone and that matches the thought in Genesis 3.15. And this is how Paul gets rid of the objection that although seed itself is a collective noun and can mean more than one seed Yet he's very specific here that this seed, singular, is Jesus Christ. And you may not realize what's going on here, but suddenly the purpose 
of God's creation of us has come strikingly into view. Now, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he tells us what the Holy Spirit meant when he had the Bible written and Genesis 3.15 was recorded. And so you have the intent of this huge promise that God made to Abraham, a decisive promise according to the argument of justification by faith alone, and it's connected to the eternal purpose of God. And what's intended here is that all the promises of God would find their culmination in Jesus Christ. In verse 17, we see the covenant was confirmed how? It says it was confirmed in Christ. Now, you've got to get this into your head because the surety for the promises that God has made, how are you going to be sure yourself? Where can you find the very best assurance for what God, God says? Well, the very best assurance that you have that God is faithful and true to keep all of his promises is that those promises are ratified in Jesus Christ that those promises are ratified by the blood of Christ. So how could you have any better hope that they will be fulfilled? Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. You know what that means? It means that every promise that God made is confirmed in Christ. So that when God makes a promise, Christ is standing there saying, Amen, so be it. It will be done. He's faithful and true. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when the blood of Jesus Christ ratifies the words of God the Father, they will come true. You can't change that. Now, what I said at the very beginning of the message is really important here, that Christ is central. That when God made the promise to Abraham, which is now... 4,000 years ago, that God made that promise to Abraham, 4,000 years ago, Christ was in view. Jesus Christ was on his mind when he made the promise to Abraham. And so it is in Christ that we're blessed. Abraham was blessed in Christ. Every person that comes to God in faith is blessed because of what Christ has done and not by what they have done. So everything that is accomplished in salvation redounds to the glory of God. And this is why you hear us keep saying these kinds of things things over and over again. Everything that we are, every purpose that we have is for the glory of God. Because all of these things are summed up in Jesus Christ, who is God, the glory of God. And so we're not saved for ourselves, but we're saved for Christ. And our salvation is what brings him glory. And that's why it can never be of works. Your salvation can't be of works because works bring you glory, not Christ. So we can never depend on anything we do. It all has to be summed up in him. Now what Paul is saying here then is that no matter what happens, no matter what happens after the promise was made to Abraham, nothing is ever going to change what God said. So if Abraham received the promise by faith, then everybody that comes after him must receive the promise by faith. This is all founded in the immutability of God the Father and the promise that he made to his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how clear that is to you. I'm trying to make it as clear as I can, but if you still don't get that, listen to it over and over again and get it into your mind that Jesus is the one who's central in everything that there is. And it's just a a tremendous principle. It's, It's terribly, overwhelmingly uplifting 
when you really get that down into your heart to why we're here. Now, people ask the question all, all, all the time, why are we here? That's why we're here, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Now, before I leave that point, let me call your attention though, to, to the preciseness of the word of God. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that the meaning of Scripture sometimes turn on the use of a singular or a plural noun. And what does that show us? Well, it shows us that the Scriptures are inspired by God, that there is no way that by yourself you could make the connection between seed in Genesis 3.15 and the promise of the seed to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 17. You can't do that. There's no way in your brain that you're going to make that connection. You have to wait to get all the way to the book of Galatians and the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write what he wrote to understand this. The Judaizers didn't get this. They didn't know this. They didn't make any kind of connections like this until Paul brought this out. Now, the rabbis that Paul was used to dealing with, those were people that really liked to strain at words. I mean, they were very meticulous and very careful about the words that they used. Every jot and tittle had its meaning, and they had to make sure that everything was exactly right. And so when Paul makes an argument like this, he just says, you know, fellas, let me have your strainer for just a little bit and let me show you what it's really all about. So every word in the Bible is inspired. What God did not do, God did not give men a general outline of what the Bible was supposed to say. And he gave them the outline. He says, now you put meat on the skeleton. You fill it all in and you you make all that work. No, no, when God... When God wrote the scriptures, all of it was in his mind. And he, and, and he had these men write down exactly what he wanted put there. And that means that anybody who ever makes an attempt to add something to the word of God or take anything away from the word of God is blasphemous. I mean, what they do is they destroy the intent of God in his word. So it's no wonder that we read in the end of the book of Revelation, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You know, those kinds of words really, really ought to make people think when they stand up in a pulpit and they purport to say something that God They said God said, but God didn't say, or put words in God's mouth or say, oh, we know WWJD, and it has nothing at all to do with what the Scripture says. Now, let me give you one more argument, and we'll close tonight. This won't take very long. This third one is the antiquity argument, the antiquity. Verse 17, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, this is an argument that fits perfectly with the previous ones. And what he's saying here is that the promise of God has the priority. It has the priority because it came first. It was established first. And the law came a long time afterwards. God was continually working through the promise that was given to Abraham a long, long time before Moses ever came on the scene. And you can see that in the fact of the amount of time that's mentioned. Paul says the law came 430 years afterward. What does he mean by that? Well, there are some people would say, all right, we found an error in the Bible. I told you there were 
mistakes in the Bible. There's all kinds of errors in the Bible because the time between the promise that was given to Abraham and the time that Moses came was 645 years. It wasn't 430 years. Now, do you think that Paul would have been so precise about a word in Scripture being singular or plural that somehow he just missed 215 years of history? I mean, wouldn't that ruin his credibility? How how credible do you think he would be on seed versus seeds if he doesn't know something that everybody ought to know? They all knew this couldn't be correct. It's 645 years, not 430. But there's no mistake here. Rather than a mistake, what we find is actually a brilliant argument. What Paul is showing is that God was working all the time with his people through the promise and not through the law. And God kept repeating that promise over and over. He gave the promise to Abraham, and then he repeated it to Isaac, and then he repeated it to Jacob. And between the time of giving the law to Moses and Jacob was 430 years. Now, there's one thing that you'll notice in the scripture. Have you ever noticed this? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are always lumped together. They always appear as one, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And do you know why that's in the Bible that way? You just discovered it right here. It's because of that promise. They're all linked together by that one promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise was good up until the time that Israel marched into the promised land. So he says 430 years because that's the time, the last time that God renewed the promise. He gave it to Jacob and that's the time between him and Moses. So they're the men of this critical promise. And all of that time, there never was a law given that could bring anybody righteousness. Now what if the Judaizers responded? Now Paul, I'm sorry, but you did make a mistake. It's 645 years, not 430. You know what Paul would say to that? He would say, are you going to insist on that 630 years? Well, absolutely. It's 630 years from Abraham to Moses. The promise was in effect for 630 years, not 430. And said, Paul, do you really want to say that? Yes, yes, we, we want to say that. You know what he says? Thank you. Thank you. You just made my argument better. It's even longer. I mean, it's 630 years that the promise has been there. You just helped me out all you could. But you know what he actually could have done? He could have just gone all the way back to Adam and the way that Adam was saved was the same as Abraham was and he could have gone to to the Garden of Eden I mean there in the Garden of Eden he'd talk about, about all of that and, and we'd have to ask you know did the commandments ever help, help Adam did keeping commandments ever help him to having a law to, to live by did that help him absolutely not there was no law that could help him get out of the mess that he was in it took something that God did God had to kill animals, make a sacrifice for him. And that's the way that God covered his nakedness. And so he could have picked anybody in between there. He could go back to Noah. He could go back to to, uh, any of the patriarchs before Abraham. Just go back as far as you want to go. Everybody's saved in the same way. So let's uh, just end this, I think, tonight by swinging back to something that I said a little bit earlier. When God made a promise to give Abraham this new land when he said that your seed is going to possess the land he had bigger things in mind than that 4,000 or so square miles that we call the land of Israel now you remember when Bill Adams was was dying he said you know 
It's not like I'm dying and going to New Jersey. And when a Christian receives his inheritance, it's not like he's going to receive that little bitty plot of land over there in the middle of a sandy desert in Israel, the size of New Jersey. It's not like that. But that God has a much bigger thing in mind for his people. He has this heavenly country in mind, and the dimensions of it are universal in size. Now, the many physical descendants of Abraham, they found their way, and they will find their way into the promised land. They found it originally when Moses took the people in or Joshua took the people in. And uh, although they've lost the land, God has made the promise that he's going to restore that land to Israel, and they will get it. But when we think about what God has promised for all of us who are the heirs of Abraham by faith, he doesn't give us just that little plot of land. He's promised us the entire world. All of it belongs to us. Heaven belongs to us. Paul says God never gave a law that could bring eternal life. He never gave a law that could give us righteousness. He says it in verse 21. We'll get to that a little bit later on. And so we just need to keep this always in our mind. If any of us are going to be saved, it'll be the same way that Adam got saved, same as Abraham, same as Isaac, same as Jacob, same as Moses, same as Joshua, same as David, same as Elijah, same as John the Baptist, same as the Apostle Paul, same for me, same for you. We all get saved the same way. And so why? Because that's the promise of God. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. God gave a promise. And he said, you'll be mine by faith in Jesus Christ and by him alone. And that is a wonderful doctrine that you never want to give up. God gave it it to us with a promise. How do I know that? The kids sing it. The Bible tells me so. That's how. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. We just rejoice in the truths that we learn here. And Lord... Uh, how grateful that we are for Jesus Christ, that all the promises that you have made find their way into Jesus Christ. They all culminate in him. And so we know that when you made a promise, you made it to your own son, and you're never going to turn your back on your son. We know that. And so we know all the promises are good for us because we are in him. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.